0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors Series podcast. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and editor of top1000funds.com. My guest today is Michelle Osterman, who's Managing Director of Investments at Railpen, which manages £30 billion in assets for the railway pension schemes in the UK. Welcome, Michelle. How are you keeping?
1: Thank you. Doing well. Thank you very much.
0: Good. So you were, you were appointed to this new position in only in November last year, having previously moved to the UK a year before or so before that from British Columbia in Canada. And, of course, none of us saw this lockdown coming. How are things for you and your new adopted home?
1: Good. Yeah, going well. Formerly I moved here uh, about January of 2019, so I've got a good year or more under my belt living and working here in the UK before we were hit by COVID. and Fortunately, uh, my husband and I had the opportunity to work remotely from Canada for the last couple of months over the summer to be near our children. So this remote working gave us that privilege, that opportunity. Um, but despite that, I think um, it's been a really significant change in times. Uh, but we're learning how to operate as a remote working company, and COVID has started to... Uh, Lighten its effect on our portfolio. And I have to admit, I think both personally and professionally, uh, we've adopted well.
0: Some some silver linings in, in all of that. Um, yeah. So, uh, Michelle, many of the CIOs I've spoken to over the past six months or so have been really focusing on liquidity and rebalancing. Can you give us a snapshot of how Railpen has weathered the volatility of this year? And, you know, in particular, your framework of return risk liquidity and how you look at the portfolio through those three things
1: yeah sure Uh,
0: so yeah i have to admit it
1: was uh obviously trying times i had only been the managing director of our investment portfolio for in under six months when this event occurred so it was a real trial by fire in fact i look back at it now and recognize it was a really strong opportunity for me to really understand the nature of our portfolio Um, its fortitude, ability to withstand market events like this, and even watch the team in action. So uh, I look back at it actually as a relatively positive experience. Um, In fact, uh, thinking a little bit more about how we navigated it, it was real sort of scenario uh, in live action. Uh, We couldn't possibly have put a stress scenario, sort of some theoretical mathematical model against our portfolio that would have given us such an opportunity. So uh, the debrief and the postmortem we're doing right now, looking at both how our portfolio accommodated the event and the nature of our our people and how we handled that from being a business continuity uh, stress on our business as well, uh, has been a real learning opportunity I think, as you described, uh, focus on liquidity, yeah, that was clearly key for us. Being a relatively long-term investor in managing pension assets means that we don't have the same sensitivity to liquidity as, say, a bank might have. Uh, the pensioners' assets that we're responsible for, those pensioners don't have, formally don't have access to be able to withdraw it with too much flexibility. And so, as such, our attention to liquidity is quite different than than many. It also means at times like this, when others might be looking to create liquidity in the portfolios, we're not as sensitive to it. We find buying opportunities more than anything. Um, although we did attend to our liquidity quite carefully during the period in that we manage money for 107 different clients And we had to make sure that those client portfolios uh, could withstand perhaps no contributions coming in. So if pension contributions were to dry up for a period of time, uh, we had to be ready. So we did a little stress scenario there and made sure we bolstered some liquidity inside of each client portfolio. Uh, we also made sure that we had enough cash available so that we could look for purchase buying opportunities. And, uh, and then we had quite a few uh, stress scenarios we built, and it gave us the opportunity to make sure that we felt strong in our liquidity risk management framework. Um, we didn't focus very much on the rebalancing. There was a bit of an opportunity there, but our portfolio didn't experience very significant losses, and so we didn't hit any thresholds that formally required us uh, to rebalance. Um, sort of the bottom part of the market around mid to late March, uh, we did find the opportunity to be able to load a bit more equity into the portfolio. Uh, We did that notionally, felt that was really well, fortunately, really well-timed and has provided uh, a really good uh, return since then. Uh, But overall, I would say uh, the volatility and the dramatic nature of March in particular didn't have a big effect on our investment strategy or our portfolios. In fact, to date, well, with only a couple months thereafter, we recovered pretty well fully and our asset position now is in the black. Uh, I think our asset level is actually a touch higher than it would have been at December 31.
0: So, the last few months have been destabilising for many reasons, um, but also in the way that investors look at the big themes that impact their future outlook, like geopolitical risk and deglobalization healthcare mobility big data issues around real estate work working patterns um, and these have all accelerated during the crisis how do you think about these big themes in your decision making and how do you how do they feed into your overall portfolio allocations
1: yeah that's the part that i find fascinating i think it's interesting when we talk about single asset a single deal—it's always fun to originate a new private asset. But I think a lot of big, long-term, patient investors like ourselves, our portfolios are sort of make or break based on more of those type of thematic, long-term, you know, strategic positioning. And uh, and so we put quite a bit of attention onto that. We have a new board chair. Uh, Mike Creston. He's been with us now for about four months, and it was a high priority for both he and I that we convene our board as quickly as possible after COVID to start talking about the potential implications. Uh, So within just a few weeks, we started developing the ability for a full strategy day. We called it post-COVID, so what? And we had each of our portfolio managers uh, dig more heavily into their strategies, unpick it, and look for both any risks and what we think the opportunities might be. And then we sort of tested it as a team. We dug into it uh, thinking about what do we expect some of the investment trends to be, either those that we've been monitoring and expecting, how they might uh, diverge, and what do we think some of the emerging themes could be. And so, just, just like you described, we came up with was about five core areas that we wanted to make sure that we uh, tested our portfolios against. And uh, we dug into each, and since then, we've been continued to be uh, sort of fortifying our research and our thoughts in those areas. The the central theme, I think, that came out from us was to think carefully about inflation, so the likelihood of deflation and the potential transition to inflation. Um, We really have been emphasizing the potential transition from what we call, you know, prior decade focus on efficiency, cost cutting, to more an environment of resilience, where companies may not be as dedicated to trying to cut the margin, uh, increase the margin and cut some of the expenses out of their business at any cost, but instead willing to spend to put that resiliency into their companies to withstand events like this in the future. So that pendulum often swings over time, and we think it's clearly going to be pushed pretty quickly back to a resiliency focus. Uh, we talked a fair bit about um, changing habits. So as you described, you know, there's a real emphasis now on uh, uh, localism rather than globalism, and uh, the remote working effect will probably have a pretty significant impact on commercial real estate. Uh, the impact on leisure and travel. And, uh, and we looked at our portfolio carefully, how we might be exposed to those things. And then I remember us also having a pretty good conversation about the effect on governments. The role governments are going to be playing uh, and the regulatory risk we might face. Any changing nationalized approach to nationalization for certain segments of the economy as well as uh, tariffs or new regulation, subsidies, et cetera. Uh, And it was fascinating to watch. I loved seeing our investment team. Our our, uh, chief investment officer, Richard Williams, has really been the star of the show, leading us through this event. And I uh, have to admit, we've got an exceptionally strong investment team And uh, this actually gave us an opportunity to revisit those strategies. And I feel very confident in some of the uh, slight repositioning they're doing to take us into the next decade.
0: So, taking those two things together, you know, kind of the the volatility, liquidity issues, and then these kind of long-term destabilizing thematics, uh, let's get a bit more specific with regards to portfolio positions. What you mentioned that you didn't really you know have to do too much rebalancing because things weren't pushed out too much but on the opportunity side you know have you invested in anything new and what sort of wins and losses did you incur and I guess more importantly what how are you positioning the portfolio for the future given what you've just said um
1: yeah so the short-term volatility obviously has very little impact to us we're really careful to not overreact to that and i'm so thankful that you know we didn't do anything uh stark or extreme during the height of the uh period of volatility in the spring uh we're such long-term patient investors uh, and our board is quite convicted our clients have a pretty strong conviction as well to allow us to be that patient so there haven't been an enormous number of material changes to the portfolio. It's more us shifting our thinking on where we may start to look for opportunities or things that we're going to start to uh, de-emphasize and look for divestment, frankly. Um, the ones that jump to mind most would be, I guess, a conversation in our property portfolio, but a shift away from retail. Now, we'd already been uh, moving ourselves from that sort of traditional approach Uh, But we've got a lot more efforts now focused on development. So as we generally shift into a development phase there, um, we've allowed ourselves to entertain a bit more focus on distressed debt. And um, I think we're also going to double up on our emphasis on infrastructure. We recognize that uh, I think governments are going to be using the investment in local infrastructure to help buy ourselves out of some of these situations. That's likely going to be a bit of a global theme. And it's especially important infrastructure adds an enormous value to a portfolio like ours where we have pension assets. Uh, you know, it provides the cash flow, it's long-term in nature, it's relatively low risk. And uh, so I, I think what we'll notice, over and it takes a while to put those infrastructure assets in the books. Um, we've actually also... And this is a bit counter, counterintuitive when we first started talking about it, but we've decided to increase our allocation to our internal um, fundamental equity program. So we do quite a bit of our equity on a quantitative basis. And uh, we believe, though, that there's going to be an increased opportunity to identify some potential winners given recent developments. So we think that there's going to be a bit of a shift. Um, in the markets, a shift in the markets like this is going to give us that opportunity to look for long-term patient investors uh, and uh, investment opportunities like us that we can marry ourselves to. And we think our fundamental equity team has that capability.
0: So from an internal organisational point of view, there's been a, you know, a relatively fair amount of change at Railpen in the last little while. As you mentioned, you've got a new chair and there's been a number of quite high profile internal positions appointed, a new head of strategy and planning, a new head of sustainable ownership and a new chief fiduciary officer of investments. There's also been some boosting of some of the internal teams such as the real assets team with new hires. Can you give us a feel for the organisational structure and what the aim is with these new hires? For example, you mentioned you know, more in, in the quant internal Team in terms of allocation, are you looking to set up to manage more assets internally as a general thing? Uh,
1: so I'll take those one at a time. Uh, yes, a lot of yes. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. I'll try to unpack it one at a time, and you can prompt me if i miss some. Um, yeah, we have a, a fair, fairly significant number of new folks joining, uh, right from the top of the house down. So our even our trustee board chair, I think, was appointed only. A year or so ago. Um, Our investment board chair, as I mentioned, Mike Craston, has been with us for four or five months. Um, Myself, being new to the MD role, I took over uh, the responsibilities of Julian Cripps, who was a managing director before me for north of five years. He was responsible for the majority of the transformation that Railpen has gone through. And I think a lot of the newness comes from the uh, execution of Chris Hitchens' original vision, you know, it's probably started almost a decade ago, and it was decided by our board, uh, with Chris Hitch- at Chris Hitchin's suggestion, that we should look to create Railpen into more of an internal, institutional asset manager. Prior to that, Railpen, like most UK pension schemes, were using primarily external managers, and that transformational journey was undertaken. It took about almost six years, maybe close to seven, uh, to fully implement. And, uh, and that's when the CIO was hired. That's when the idea for a new chief fiduciary officer, which brought me here from Canada to take that role, uh, that's when that all came to light. And so it's really just part of a journey, what Railpen is on, to transform itself into what would look and feel more like a traditional global asset owner. And so they transitioned from being more of an asset manager or the you know, manager of managers uh, into an asset owner, And uh, being £30 billion and managing the assets of 107 different clients with a very diverse range of pensions, some very small closed pensions to some rather large open schemes still attracting new members into them, um, they recognized that their model is complex, it's here to stay, they had something special, and they felt that they could uh, provide an even better investment um, approach to investments better suited to the nature of the liabilities by going through this transformation. And so all that newness is a result of that underlying intention uh, to transform their approach to investments. And I was attracted to that. So part of my motivation for leaving Canada and the role that I was in uh, was to come here and help them on that journey. And it's just been a fantastic experience to see a firm transform itself so materially. Uh, One of the first things, building on a second question you had there, one of the first things as managing director, I was given the opportunity to define what I thought we needed as a management team going forward. And so we looked closely at, you know, how we're organized, what might the future bring. And I chose to add a new remarkable uh, young gentleman, Stephen Tyrrell, as my head of strategy and planning, uh, to help us really shape what that next phase of our journey is. We've largely executed on the original transformation program, We've put in place the CIO, his investment teams. We now have 35% of our portfolio uh, into private assets. Uh, The majority of our assets are being managed internally now. We're slowly bringing down our use of external managers. Um, We've got the fiduciary team up and running. So we've ticked most of the boxes. And so uh, Steve and I, the majority of our focus for the remainder of this year and into next, is to start to think about what's, what's the future look like for RELPEN. Uh, we stand out a bit here. We're a bit different than the rest of the pension plans, and that we are relatively large, uh, f- you know, very open in the nature of our liabilities. Uh, open DB is not common here, uh, and we do consider ourselves to be comparable to our global peers, global pension peers, and uh, and we think there's a lot of untapped potential.
0: So you mentioned that the the work by Chris and uh, obviously under the watchful eye. Of Roger Irwin back in back in the day, mm-hmm. and, and R- yeah. R- ralpen has been looking at its organizational design for quite a few years now, as you as you say, and a big part of that is is culture, and I know this is yep. also a passion yep. of yours, and you look yep. to recruit people who believe that can be a force for good in society and who desire to be of service, uh, not just uh, you know meeting some risk return outcome. So can you can you tell us a bit about? why you think that's important? Why, why is culture important and how does it contribute to the mission of the organisation?
1: Yeah, I, you know, nothing matters more to me. I, um, I think anybody who knows me that's listening to this is going to uh, probably have a little smirk on their face recognising I go on and on about it. But I, what, what attracts me to a business is the culture. It's a combination, not just of the people, but the nature of the board, the purpose behind what we do. There has to, for me personally, uh, you know, we could all work at a multitude of different investment companies. We have a lot of different types of designations and we're excited to do finance and math and investments. Using what we know and applying it to improve the situation for these pensioners, to try to bring about as good a possible a, a lifetime income for, you know, a pensioner that probably doesn't even know we exist. Someone who might only take out of our, our average, I believe they calculated this for me when I started, our average uh, income that a pensioner out of rail pen is maybe a £100 a week. So what's that, £5,000 a year of income. That's not a lot of money. Uh, certainly not enough to live off of by itself. Although they're often referred to as gold-plated, what we're really providing is a certain segment of the economy, certain type of consumer an income that, when supplemented with maybe their national or federal you know, basic income opportunity, is, is just barely enough uh, to live off of. It's meant to supplement their personal savings, but most importantly, it's lifetime. It's helping hem- them hedge longevity. It's making sure that when they may deplete other sources of savings, if they happen to be fortunate enough to have a nice long life, uh, that this piece is always there for them. And we provide that longevity protection for them as a form of insurance, if you will, uh, in a way that's really efficient. We've pooled, like an insurance fund would pool multiple lives into a single fund. And we're able to use the concept of insurance and offset those that, you know, die early for those who live long. And then insurance to protect for long life is more growing in its importance more and more And I have parents who all benefit from, a couple have, my parents have been divorced and remarried, so I have four parents. Um, They have varying types of DC and DB pensions and one that has neither. And I've watched them as they've been navigating this through their 70s and now into their 80s and how vitally important it is them. The parent that has the DB pension plan has this calm and this just general appreciation for knowing that she's not going to be a burden to her kids, and that there's no risk of her, you know, having to deplete resources later in life, and we do have a fair bit of longevity in our family, Uh, and I really have learned to appreciate the importance of what we do. It's not just money, finance, investing. We're providing a social provision, and there's a portion of society that can't really get that affordably elsewhere. They can buy an individual annuity, but the rates, the prices, and the fees that come with that aren't even close to what we can do here. And so that motivates me. I'm personally motivated by being able to provide that opportunity, even if it's never really um, generally understood by the average pensioner. Uh, And I think that purpose that underlies why we do these investments resonates with many people we attract. We attract to this portion of the buy-side industry when we recruit because they too want to have a stronger purpose behind what they do. And so at Railpen in particular, there's just a wonderful culture inside of our investment business where people come, they recognize we don't have the top salary in the industry, and and they maybe have a, tried their hand at other segments of the Of our industry, but when they come, they feel that alignment, and it does give us that extra special motivation and pride in what we do. And I really try to make sure that that is at the core of what motivates people, and uh, that when we do a fit test to make sure people are joining us for the right reasons, uh, we like to make sure there's a pretty strong alignment.
0: So in terms of the sort of next iteration of the organisation, which you sort of alluded to before, you know, both in terms of your own internal structures, but also, you know, perhaps where you direct your investments and, and how you hold any external providers that you do have to account. Tell me a little bit about how diversity and inclusion will play a role in, you know, how how you approach the future.
1: Yeah, I think this is a hot topic. Um, and being one of very few women responsible for an investment management company, I get asked this every time, obviously. I have and, to say, though, um,
0: Michelle, it is, I pretty much just interview men. So it's such yeah. a pleasure to hear your voice.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny. I get asked that all the time. And I'm just so used to being the only woman on a board or a committee or in a management team. I just, just kind of, uh, it doesn't phase me very much anymore. But. You're right, it's, I, I get requests to do uh, conversations like this quite often, and it's usually most of the reason comes from the fact that I stand out a bit different.
0: I Unless do, I do, I do appreciate men, it. I do ask men the same question, by the way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> good, as we should. Um, yeah, I struggle with my answer on this every time because obviously it sounds very biased, but I, I do think diversity, not just gender diversity, but I think diversity is just such a massive uh Benefit to not just businesses, but just um, you know decision making, creating an environment where we have a diverse set of opinions, uh, people who are able to challenge one another positively, challenge one another, you know provoke conversation, um, inspire a different uh, style or approach to communication. I think that's one thing that I really appreciate from the diversity that we've put inside of our uh, investment team. The the management team that I've built for Railpen Investments is uh, four women, four men. I have very proudly attracted just some remarkable people, but in particular, the women that have agreed to join our team just amaze me. And uh, I can see the dynamic inside that team, and it's a real enjoy enjoyable experience. You know, we're new, to, new as a team. We're just learning the forming, norming, storming. Uh, but it's people that have an enormous amount of respect for one another. It's a real collegial environment, and uh, it's just such a joy to be on a team like that. In part, that's afforded by the diversity, I do believe, uh, but we had to work really hard to create that diversity. Uh, we spent a fair bit of time. It took me you know, almost a year to be able to attract those, those right eight people, and um, we first started by recruiting our recruiters put a fair bit of effort to make sure that we were choosing, defining the mandate and making sure the recruiter understood that mandate and insisting that that recruiter had access to a network that included uh, some of the strongest women, uh, both in the local and global market. I have found that attracting women in particular and more senior women in finance is especially difficult. Uh, they're not always readily available. Obviously, there's a scarcity, but you also have to usually tap them on the shoulder to attract them. Uh, they're not going to be Googling and looking on LinkedIn for these opportunities. And so there's a fair bit of lead time involved in being able to attract them. And it's fairly important that you have the right network to be able to uncover where they are. And, and, uh, and then make sure that the fit test is there. Make sure that they feel they're joining a team that appreciate uh, and have a purpose that they feel aligned to. And uh, it seems to be working. Uh, We've got some more work to do on some of our more middle management type roles. Our investment team uh, is really focused right now on trying to add some more women into its ranks. Uh, Our fiduciary team uh, is looking to add a few more as well. And we have a new chief operating officer, a KOTO chief operations and technology officer, uh, who's just been fantastic about building a strategy. And we talk often about how important diversity within his team is. So as I said before, the, Diversity aspect is something we try to engineer and we think it adds value, but the diversity and inclusion, that inclusion part is probably even more important. And inclusion leads back to culture. So an inclusive culture means that those voices, not just if we ticked a box and added people that we think provide diversity, inclusion means that we enable them to contribute and that the diversity generally is revered in the culture and that we create an environment where they're safe to inject despite still being a minority in many cases, safe to inject the value of their diversity. So one is more about a makeup and the other, the D, and the I to me is more about the enablement and the culture that promotes the appropriate and beneficial integration of those diverse voices into the fabric of the firm. And so I'm uh, certainly not an expert at it, but I, uh, I pay special attention to it and really look to uh, the help of an HR team to be able to enable that as part of a corporate culture.
0: I heard um, Marissa Hall from the Thinking Ahead Institute at Willis Towers Watson said, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is feeling like you can change the record. Um. Yeah. Oh, I like that's much more eloquent
1: than what I said. <laughs> but I agree exactly, emphatically. I agree, and it's hard to do. I think the shifting of a culture as a leader. My job, of course, I try to help navigate liquidity and make sure that we have governance in place and that we've got a compliance team. Really, I think the majority of my role as a leader of shaping those types of intangible aspects of the business and trying to patiently and firmly. Um, encourage and create uh, those dialogues, that conversation and give permission for the business uh, to go through sometimes difficult conversations and opportunities uh, for us to be able to work differently, work differently, look differently, act differently, and not easy. Uh, But that's, I spend probably the majority of my time, especially lately, I spend the majority of my time on just doing that.
0: So let's talk a little bit about this fiduciary function that you've mentioned a couple of times. And you were originally hired from British Columbia Investment Management Corp in Canada to to come across and head up that function. And now you've hired Mads Gosvig from uh, the former head of investment strategy at ATP to run that. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? It's quite a rare thing to have that fiduciary function in a UK pension plan. So just run us through what that looks like and what your plans are for it.
1: Yeah, I was attracted here to be able to take on that role, and uh, I believe in it passionately. I think it's what transitions an investment management company from being just an investor to being a pension investor. It's what makes sure that our investment teams, which are all about execution and originating deals and managing our assets, from being like unlike other asset managers, but instead transitioning us into being a, an investment manager that is a managing its assets to align to its liabilities. It allows the liability, the risk tolerance of the clients, the expectations of the pensions to find its way into and shape the mandates of our investment team. So in a way, by having a fiduciary office, um, which is about the same size, our investment team in its entirety is just over 40 people and our fiduciary team is probably 30, 35. So I look at the two in concert together, and I think of that as a more traditional investment. And uh, our CIO function is kind of supplemented by the chief fiduciary officer. I see them both as sort of uh, quasi-CIOs in a way, where the fiduciary officer helps shape the top-down mandate, working with clients, doing all of our ALM, our actuarial work, uh, defining the asset allocation. So a lot of our asset allocation comes out of uh, an ALM. Uh, actuarial decision-making framework and also shaping the total fund top-down risk tolerances etc all the investment risk management is done inside the fiduciary team all the client relationship management anything we do with respect to clients around plan design um, covenant considerations all of our ESG through our sustainable ownership team is done through the fiduciary team so the fiduciary team kind of set the table there manage clients manage the stakeholders uh, define our SIPs and our portfolio mandates. And then the CIO, the investment team, takes over from there around the execution. So there's a handoff between the to- at the total portfolio level where the client level and all that complexity is handled by the fiduciary team, kind of consolidated it to a total portfolio view. And then with the CIO's help, we translate it into a pooled fund view and he thereby manages it from the bottom up. So the concert and the handoff between the two teams is really important, but together... Uh, it makes for a really sophisticated investment management firm. Now, as you said, it's not very common in the UK. There's lots of a fiduciary industry here, but a lot of it is fee-for-service or consulting advisory functions for smaller firms. Railpen had the foresight about three years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. One of its board members uh, had worked in Holland and was quite familiar, Angeline Kemna quite familiar with the fiduciary model that's more internally done and she had recommended to our board at the time they consider it Uh, and julian Cripps ran with it took the reins created the vision for it hired me from canada and then i had the good fortune of spending about I, you know, nine maybe 12 months in the role uh kind of setting it up getting the strategy approved and now very privileged to have Mads Gosvig join us from ATP we were all very excited to have landed him uh far more capable than myself and I have no doubt he's going to make do great things in that role is already and that fiduciary team although not typical in the UK to be in-house that fiduciary team is what I think differentiates us and I would argue we pretty strong in its approach uh, to how it manages such complex and varied liabilities. And in large part, that comes as a result of that fiduciary team. So I would say it's really kind of the cornerstone of our business right now. It's given a ton of priority. That strategy is is one of our highest priorities to execute on. And uh, and I do think as our pensions in the UK become um, more and more challenging, more schemes are closing more of our closed schemes are going into runoff. We have to manage defensively, a lot more uh, risk management required on those. Uh, we're going to need that fiduciary team even more. So uh, it's getting a disproportionate amount of our effort these days.
0: So Michelle, as I mentioned, you, you moved from Railpen uh, to Ma- Railpen. sorry, from BCIMC, and where you were senior vice president responsible for investment risk, strategy, research, and corporate relations. I'm interested to know if there's any particular lessons from that Canadian experience and growing up in that, around that Canadian model that you're bringing across to Railpen, and do you see, for example, you know, some of the strengths of the Canadian model being good governance, big internal teams, this focus on risk management, big allocations to direct private assets. Do you see those sort of characteristics of the Canadian model generally as being transferable to UK funds?
1: Yes, yes, with an exclamation mark. That is my simplest answer. I I was attracted here because I could see that Railpen was on that journey. Uh, it really has a vision for itself that is meant to have more of those Canadian characteristics. Now, it's not verbatim. Obviously, there's aspects that are unique to Canada. And so my job has been to leverage what I do know from Canada, of course, but really to try to make it homegrown and apply only those things that are particularly relevant and and put our own spin on it. And uh, that's what I think we're doing. I'm really quite pleased. Uh, I'm working most closely these days on the governance aspects. So I helped uh, bring in some new thinking on investment risk governance in particular and our board has just recently approved a new governance framework uh, for investment decision making. Very excited to see that roll out over the course of the next year. Uh, We are also starting to rethink governance as a whole and ask ourselves, you know, given all this recent transformation and such a massive shift in our approach to how we manage investments inside RELPEN, what does that mean for our governance model? You know, what do we need to do to modernize it to sort of keep up with the changes we've made in our investment business? Uh, So obviously I'm bringing with me some experience from the Canadian side there, but it's going to have to be quite tailored and customized to fit the local expectations and norms. Uh, The use of private assets is something that Railpin's already been on that similar journey, Uh, but we can see ourselves having an increased use of those private assets over time Uh, and then emphasis on asset management. So as we get a little more mature, uh, we're transitioning from you know a focus on origination to just as much focus on asset management. We've got a good-sized in-house, uh, pardon me, in-force portfolio uh, that needs care and maintenance. And uh, we've learned that sometimes the biggest portion of one's returns and the success for a transaction is not the transaction itself, but uh, the life of the asset and how we manage it through its life cycle and our decision when to dispose of it. Um, divest from it uh, is is equally important, and so we're we're trying to build some more asset management capabilities, a bit more emphasis. And I think what I've learned from the Canadian model most uh, is, and that I we're really trying to focus on here uh, in the near future, is the benefit of, of um, multi-client. Because I think what Canada when they call the Canadian model. Why it's been successful and how it's evolving is the fact it's folded into these large institutional asset managers a multiple of mandates. And so, there's many examples in Canada where, you know, there are hundreds of billions of dollars in assets under management, they started really maybe backing a decent-sized pension fund or some type of, um, you know, public insurance type program, but over time, once they built the, invested the fixed costs required to build some of those internal management capabilities, these investment managers started to look as big or sophisticated as anything you'd find on Bay Street or Wall Street. And they realized that they're not-for-profit entities. And they are fraternal in nature, if you will. They're dedicated investment managers, not-for-profit and non-commercial. And there was a real advantage to scale. And so the scale started to grow and they started to fold more and more pensions into them or you know, bringing some public funds, even managing uh, endowments or uh, you know, trust funds, et cetera. And as the mandates started to broaden the types of liabilities they put in, they found real advantage of scale on the asset side. And so that's what I think RailPen has in its strength is we're managing 107 different clients. When you look in under the hood, we really have a lot of our business that looks like an institutional asset manager with a little bit of a commercial capability. Because we have 107 clients, we have quarterly pension committee meetings for over 30 of them. And so we've had to build a lot of that front office type look and feel you might find in a traditional manager. And, uh, and that's something that I think... Uh, is very familiar to the Canadian model. So as best I can, I'm trying to bring some of that multi-client knowledge and um, stakeholder management knowledge, even government relations type experience uh, into the business because uh, it's our scale comes from that multi-client environment and it's something that we need to leverage.
0: So many great things going on, Michelle, and I'm certainly going to keep an eye on uh, how things progress at Railpen. It's been wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you very, very much for your time and um, please stay safe. Oh, thank you very much. And you
1: too. Appreciate the opportunity.